From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, journalism professor Marcy Burstyn joins me to discuss the First Amendment that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Okay, let me move to uh, domestic affairs. I want to defend Laura Ingram. I know that sounds ridiculous, uh, <laughs> but it has to do with the Parkland kids and guns and free speech. Now, I think those kids did a great thing. They put this issue uh, in a place we've never had it before, and I wish them success. But, you know, if you're going to be out there in the arena and make yourselves the champions of this cause, people are going to have the right, I think, to argue back. Now, Laura Ingram, and we go back to early days of politically incorrect. Oh, my God, there she is, right. Oh, where did the years go? Yeah. <laughs> well, and in, in the intervening years, I mean, she just has become a deliberately terrible person, I think. You know, just saying horrible things. But, but you know what? Here's what she, she tweeted, David Hogg rejected by four colleges, because he put that up there, because, of course, we have to share everything, uh, to which he applied and whined about it. Okay, maybe you shouldn't say that about a 17-year-old, but again, he is in the arena, and then he calls for a boycott of her sponsors. Now, what, what is, really, is that American? To call for yeah, a, yeah, really that, 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 let, let me explain something. Because uh, I told because I, I, I don't I, I, think, I, and he complains about bullying. That's listen, bullying. I, I have been the victim you. of a boycott. I, look, I, I, I lost a job once. It is wrong. You shouldn't Boy, be do this by team. You should do it by principle. I agree. But but but, <laughs> but listen. Here's the thing. We, we agree. We, we I was a, I was a lawyer once. Right? I was attorney general. I think requires you to be a lawyer, right? We agree on 99% of, of stuff out there. She has the right to say whatever she wants, with very, very few exceptions. We have the right to speak back. And when we speak have... Back no, no, when we, no, no, when we have the right to speak back, boycotting, think of the civil rights movement. Boycotting is part of free speech. Saying, I don't want to work with that person. Saying, I will, not, I will not buy a product from that person. Really? That's speech. And of all the things Laura Ingram has said over the no, no, years, that was not this the worst. was the thing no, that broke no, no, the camel's no, no. back. But she's no, a horrific I person. That you just was, said it. I agree that this wasn't the worst thing. So I mean, she, she's been mean, terrible to LBGTQ community, to African Americans. But the fact is, I hate when the term free speech is used in this commercial context because the First Amendment doesn't guarantee you the right to have a soap advertisement in between your segments, which is what no, but, we're but effectively it is about it, government infringement. But effectively it is, it is the modern way of cutting off free speech. It, but it's, she can, she can still talk all she wants. That doesn't mean that all these big companies have to underwrite her speech to millions of people. And I would, what I would say is, I mean, and I, it's, and I, it's a very chilling, it's a very chilling well, atmosphere I mean, when this happens because no, no, it happens, it could happen to any of you. By yeah, the I way. completely you're right. agree. You're I completely right. agree. And I mean, it's the it, price that we pay. I don't think that Johnson and Johnson's and all of these other, you know, mom and apple pie brands are going to want to stick with Fox News in the long term as they go down this hole of be attacking every single segment of their consumer base. Right. Let me ask you a question. Do you that? think it would be fair 
for the victims of gun violence to say to the companies, you can advertise on her show, but we're going to boycott your products if you do that. Because we don't want to buy products from companies that give her money. Is that fair? Because she said a kid no, 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 whined no. about his because, college no, but, no, not no, getting into a, a college? No, no, for, take the substance of so, that comment. So, so the, the concept. Discuss the concept. Can we organize and say we won't work or buy products from a company that does horrible stuff? Yes, of you course. can. But that's I'm what saying it's about. wrong. That was Bill Maher, host of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, debating the First Amendment with Heather McGee, president of the Demos Institute, columnist Max Boot, and former New York Governor Elliot Spitzer. In case you missed it, in the wake of the Parkland mass shooting, a number of corporate sponsors have pulled their support from Ingram's primetime cable talk show on Fox News because she was perceived as taunting via social media one of the survivors, David Hogg. In response, Hogg encouraged his plethora of Twitter followers to write to the advertisers of Ingram's show, demanding they pull their ads. More than a dozen corporations withdrew their advertisement, including Office Depot, Gerber, Hulu, Honda, and Johnson & Johnson. Marr saw this as a violation of the First Amendment. The First Amendment may very well be the most debated and most misappropriated constitutional amendment within our valued traditions. Free speech in the First Amendment as former president of Brown University and free speech advocate Alexander Mickeljohn opined, is to tolerate speech, including subversive speech, and speech that may pose other dangers in order to face up to the ideas to be fearless, unflinching, and self-reliant in the pursuit of our shared beliefs and interests. Joining me to discuss the First Amendment is Professor Marcy Burstener. Professor Burstener, journalism professor at Humboldt State University in California. She is also founder of the Humboldt Center for Constitutional Rights, known as HUMRights. Professor Marcy Burstener, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. Thank you. When you think about the First Amendment, or should I say First Amendments, plural, because it, it covers multiple aspects of American life, how do you see it? I see it as a, a basic protection to to the way we live, um, because as you said, it's not just about speech or press. It's also about our ability to complain about the government and to gather with other people to complain about the government, um, which we seem to to take a, to take, to take um, for granted here in this country. It's, we forget that in most of the world, uh, people don't have those very basic protections. And without that, you can't really have a democracy. Um, because otherwise, you don't have the... Like, you don't have an educated public that can really take ideas and think for themselves. Now, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was uh, was based on uh, HBO's Bill Maher ostensibly uh, defending um, Fox News host Laura Ingram as she criticized in a tweet one of the survivors of the uh, the Parkland uh, mass shooting, uh, Mr. David Hogg, and, and Mr. Hogg responded by leading a campaign that called for her advertisers to to boycott her show, and this had this had some success. But uh, Bill Maher viewed this as a modern way to cut off free speech. Right. Is he right? No. 
No. I just it, I love how how Bill takes devil's advocate positions all the time, which is a great way of um of getting people engaged in the conversation. Um so I'm so glad he did that. But because it spurs the whole conversation. But no, he's wrong. Um boycott is an expression of the First Amendment and it's an important expression of the First Amendment. In fact the ACLU has come out defending boycotts specifically for First Amendment expression, the right to boycott. Um, because what he's missing is that the boycott of Laura Ingram is not a boycott of the speech. It's a boycott of the distribution of the speech, and more specifically, it's a boycott of the profiting off of the distribution of the speech. So the argument isn't whether Laura Ingraham can say what she's saying. She has a perfect right to say what she's saying. The First Amendment absolutely protects that. And if, if someone said she has to shut up, I would say no. She has a First Amendment protection to say what she wants to say. But she doesn't necessarily have a first thought, does not necessarily have a First Amendment protection for profiting off of that speech. And that's the difference. So what I hear you saying is we want, is it, is it a desire to, to make the First Amendment not only free speech, but also, in a naive sense, free from repercussion? Yes, well, yes, but that's the confusion, because cause Oliver Wendell Holmes, when he talked about the free marketplace of ideas, which is the basic notion of the first, behind the First Amendment, it's the idea that good speech can drown out bad speech in a free marketplace of ideas. The problem is, David Hogg is a teenager in Florida, and his speech is not as powerful as Laura Ingram backed by Fox, which is one of, of, of the very few media oligopolies, or, or the oligopoly that includes Fox. And so, so because Fox has so, so much access TV screens and movie screens and all kinds of newspapers. Um, Fox has the ability to, to get up on a much bigger soapbox than David Hogg. And that's not a free marketplace of ideas. And so the boycott is, is a way of leveling that, of bringing that down. So David Hogg does not have the ability to get on TV whenever he wants to onto thousands and thousands and thousands of TV screens. But what he does have the power to do is through the new medium of social media to say, hey, everyone, if you don't agree with that speech, let's speak out in the way we can speak out, which is with our pocketbooks. Is there, in your view, um, sort of staying loosely with, with, with the Bill Maher scenario, is there loosely, in your view, uh, a simplicity to the language within the First Amendment that obfuscates its true meaning? Um, can, can you rephrase that for me? Well, well, just that free speech. And so we, 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 we simplify it. And so, but the real meaning is far more complicated than I have the right to say something. And do we get trapped in the simplicity of that language? And, 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 and we're unable to see the vastness of what the First Amendment really entails for us. No, I don't think so. I think, I think people, people confuse the issue by, 
by making it more complicated than it actually is. I mean, there's two parts of the First Amendment that really go into what we're talking about. One is free speech, which means you have the right to, to take a soapbox, literally, go into the park, stand on it, and, and say whatever you want, and you can't be arrested for that. Um, within limits, even, though, because, because there's the idea of hate speech, um, and there's the idea of libel. Um, but then there's the idea of free press, and free press says that not only do you have the right to get onto that soapbox physically, but you have the right to print what you want on a sheet of paper and distribute it. You've got the right to do that, and the government can't shut you down for that. No one can say that you can't do that. But that, that's where the First Amendment stops, and that's where, where the whole where the First Amendment works and where free speech works is when, when the people who are speaking have ramifications for their speech. So you can get up in, in a very small town and start saying really nasty things about all your neighbors, but you're not going to be liked in this town. And the First Amendment does not say that you have the right to be liked after your speech. And if you are a merchant, and you start putting nasty posters in your window that vilify certain people in town who are well-liked, the First Amendment does not force people to shop in your store. So the First Amendment works, free expression works, when bad speech has ramifications. So, in other words, free speech is not necessarily free. It has a cost. No, the speech is... The speech itself. No one can stop you beforehand from saying it, but you've got to be willing to live with the consequences. Well, that's the part I was talking about that's not free, the consequences. The consequences, yeah. I once um, interviewed this, um, this man um, over in Malaysia, this was years ago, and, they, and, and the government had been kind of rounding up political activists, and he said that, um, that freedom of speech is great, but freedom after speech is even better. Um, and that was, that's kind of the whole crux of the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects freedom of speech, and it protects freedom after speech. But it doesn't protect the right to make money off your speech. Yeah, you know, and so, and so this sort of uh, also staying with, you know, the, in the, the macro context of the, of the Bill Maher situation, could one posit that the barometer for free acceptance, uh, for free speech acceptance, I should say, uh, should be based on the speech that we philosophically oppose. In other words, that let's let's say I'm opposed to the Ku Klux Klan philosophically, but then I support their right to march, you know, in a peaceful assembly. And what I what we saw with Mr. Morris, he didn't like the speech of David Hogg, so then he uses free speech to hide behind the fact that he doesn't like the speech. And that seems antithetical to me to what free speech really is. No, I actually think that Bill Maher was, was he, he really is genuinely concerned about the idea of censorship, which is something that also genuinely concerns me. I'm very concerned about censorship. Um, the thing is, he's not looking forward, really, though, because if boycotts, for, for him to be, to, for us to be really concerned about boycotts and censorship of, of speech, um, the Laura Ingraham boycott is, is very um, powerful because it doesn't happen very often. 
people started boycotts all the time over all kinds of speech, the boycott itself would become ineffective because corporations could not, they couldn't, they could not advertise, right? And so, I mean, you might end up having the interesting situation where, um, where this kind of opinion-oriented talk shows start disappearing off our, off our TVs because um, corporations are not willing to take sides in anything, which I actually think would be a good thing. It's like, um, I think, again, that kind of levels the playing field. If we don't have an equal amount of talk shows, with an equal amount of distribution, then then it's it's an unfair marketplace. Um, if we had none of that on television, people would have to get their ideas from a different place. Uh, I'm not exactly sure that uh, that it would necessarily be a bad thing. Um, I don't think boycotts would would end up being that effective though if they were done all the time. So I'm not that concerned about it being an overall censoring device. The other thing is, you know, we know that any time a book is banned, the book gets a bigger readership than ever. Any attempt at censorship actually gets people... I never watched Laura Ingram when I watched it because of the boycott. So I don't actually think that boycotts um, actually result in censorship, but they could if Laura Ingram is actually concerned about her pocketbook as much as as she's devoted to her ideas, she will she will start changing her speech. Um, but that's kind of an interesting thing, because that means that, in part, she might be making this speech only for the profit value. And should that be protected speech? So, so, so given the work that you do at uh, Humble State, are, how are we doing, in your opinion, um, in our in our quest to uh, defining free expression in the digital in the digital age. Oh, it's t- terrible. We're doing a terrible job um, because what Bill Murray is it, is see. I think he's missing the the real dangers. I'm more concerned that um, colleges won't let Lauren Green um, speak on the college campus. I think that is a real fundamental problem. Um, I think that um, that. If you see studies now, studies are showing increasingly that students feel that um, that they have an equal right to not hear bad speech as they have a right to speak, and that's super dangerous. Um, that that people are feeling better about censorship in general and self censorship in particular um, more than the idea of free speech. I think that's a very dangerous thing. Uh, if you're just joining us, I am speaking with Humboldt State University journalism professor Marcy Burstener about the First Amendment. And uh, Professor Burstener, can we, in your opinion, honor the spirit of free expression that originated in 1787 while embracing some of the, many of the realities of the 21st century? Can we find that balance? Oh, it's hard. Um, because this is where things do get really complicated. And that has to do with what I'm going back to from, from the very beginning of our conversation, which is the difference between speech and distribution of speech. And the problem is that the, di- 
distribution of media rests in the hands of a very few big corporations. Um, you've got the movie theater owners who are very small in number. You've got the TV networks, very small in number, the cable operators, satellite operators. And then you've got the digital ones, Facebook and Twitter and Google, um, who are the biggest. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that they really have freedom of speech at heart. I think they, where they do, it's because they're profiting off of it. And the profit motivation, the money-making motivation off of speech is where things get really screwy. Um, and I think that's why we see so much of this crazy, slanted misinformation out there um, because it drives in profits. It's very profitable. And um, and the thing is, the, the First Amendment really came about at a time where people did not have that kind of monopoly. No one had a monopoly of speech. It didn't take a lot to, to, to print up, you know, a one sheet of paper and, and, and hand deliver it. And the, and the U.S. government, in the very beginning, made the post office mail free or super cheap to, to distribute media. Uh, but we're in a way different environment now. Are you concerned that the free expression contained in, in, in the uh, First Amendment um, the expansion to corporations, and I'm thinking specifically the Supreme Court's uh, rulings in Citizens United and Hobby Lobby, that those have a way, if they expand speech for corporations, they, they I guess, uh, decrease uh, speech for the individual. Does that concern you at all? Yes, that's my, that's my, that's my big concern, because it comes back to the idea of the free marketplace of ideas, and we don't have a free marketplace of ideas when the distribution of the ideas rests in the hands of very few corporations. Um, that, that's the whole problem. And I think this really started in the 90s with the, um, the changes in, in um, regulations on media during the Clinton administration. And, and the allowing of consolidation of media and the taking away of the idea of, of the fairness um, doctrine and um, the idea that if you're a news organization and you're, and you're portraying one idea, you should be also portraying equal ideas um, on public airwaves. So we end up having a divided nation because, because some people are just not getting access to alternative ideas. Um, which I, think, I find it very, very dangerous, actually. But a lot of it has to do with the corporatization of media distribution. That's, I think that's the whole problem. When you say corporations, say more about that, if you would. Well, it's the idea that people don't understand where they're getting their, their news and or even their opinions. And so they think they're getting their opinion from Laura Ingram, but they're not. They're getting their, their Laura Ingram's opinion from Fox. Fox has the ability to say whether she has the platform or she doesn't have the platform. And if Fox doesn't like what Laura Ingram is saying, they're going to take her down. They're going to pull her out. Now, they might have purely a profit motive, um, in mind, which to, and to me 
is actually quite comforting when corporations are purely profit-driven. But I don't think they do. I think corporations are loved by people, and they they want to make money, and sometimes they want to do something else as well. And, And so the idea is, do I believe in Lauren Grimm's First Amendment right? Absolutely. Do I believe in Fox, corporations, First Amendment right? No, not really. Um, and if I if I if they didn't have so much power, and if Google didn't have so much power to determine what you see on your news feed through algorithms, and Facebook through whatever mysterious things it does in its back end um, to what shows up on your limited screen, um, it, it, it's it's that's what's that's why. Last answer. I was thinking. I, I, I recall, oh, maybe ten years ago, um, MSNBC did a, a segment on uh, on um, Exxon because Exxon didn't pay corporate taxes, uh, income tax, and but there was another corporation that did that also fell into that category, which is General Electric, that was not mentioned in the story, and I suspect it wasn't mentioned in the story because. General Electric owns NBC. Right, right. And most people don't know that. Most people don't know that General Electric owns NBC or Disney owns ABC. They don't know that. Um, and 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 the problem is, this became clear with with Sinclair. What happened um, last week is that is that the distribution of your media is being controlled even down to the very local level. So most people don't know that their local newspaper is owned by a giant corporation, most likely, that's, um, that's owned by an investment fund. They don't know that. Um, they don't know that their local TV station is owned and, and tightly controlled by a corporation in, um, in a big city very, very far away. And some of these corporations are ultimately owned by one person. And so you have one person in control of an enormous amount of, of, of media distribution, and they've got the ability to, to determine whether you're going to be able to see Laura Ingram at a certain time every night on your TV screen or somebody else. They're going to be able to determine through algorithms or through people whether a story is going to show up at the top of your screen on your news search or not. And that's what's dangerous. And people, people don't, with, with all that concern over First Amendment and whether people should or should not say things, very few people are looking at the power of distribution. Uh, I want to go back uh, to the comments you made about um, universities and free speech. Uh, because a number, you, you mentioned uh, like at UC Berkeley, had a couple situations last year with uh, Ann Coulter and right. uh, and Milo uh, as well, and um, in, in, in campuses, you know, uh, talk about that safe space. I mean, Rutgers University boycotted uh, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. So they're that what I call the mythical safe space. But if we're fair, in fairness. Hasn't that in some way always, uh, haven't we had that in other forms 
where somebody who wants to limit speech is looking for a safe place. And look at some of the, the religious um, First Amendment legislation, uh, executive order passed by President Trump that allows religion to practice their religion and just say, well, I'm a Christian organization, therefore I can deny service to certain people. Isn't that a replication of desiring that safe space? Uh, yeah, see, that's where things get really complicated, because the question is, is sometimes the question is, what constitutes speech? But, um, but, but I do think that we've had these battles, yeah, for forever, um, in terms of, of not allowing certain people to speak at certain places, um, and, and people only wanting to hear what they already know and feel comfortable with. I think I think we've had that's not really new. It's it's more <sighs> renew. It's 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 getting back to to what used to be. Um I, I think that we were kind of it became news last year because that hadn't happened in a long time. Um and I do think that, that colleges should be a place and universities should be a place where people learn what they don't know, right? And learn what they're uncomfortable with. Um and that's, I find, the trend against that very dangerous, that, that college students who should be thirsting for new information don't seem to want it. They don't want new information. They want, you know, some, some. Um, they, they want confirmation of their beliefs. And um, to me, that's very, that's very frightening. Are, are, are they, in your view, just... Uh, mimicking um, the larger culture because don't don't we now go to the source that confirm largely I should say go to the source that confirms what we already believe whether it's the website of choice or the cable news show of choice. Uh, well, I do think it's an effect of that. I think it's it's an effect of the disappearance of the general interest newspaper and the general interest news weekly. Um, so you would read Time magazine and get a general idea of what's going on in the world. You, you pick up your local newspaper or your national newspaper and you got a general idea of what's going on. And now with um, the Google effect, you Google information based on what you already know. And the algorithms give you what you're already interested in. And that just reinforces and reinforces and reinforces. And, um, and your friendships are basically formed online through um, shared ideas. Um, so I think I think it's an effect of it, of, an effect of all that happening, and that's what I find very dangerous. Now, now given your your focus um, in terms of teaching uh, is in journalism, could you uh, assess the current landscape of journalism in the First Amendment as you see it? Oh, you know, the journalism industry, the media industry, is changing so rapidly that it's really hard to keep up with it. Um, I do, I, I do think that I'm finding fewer students who want to go into journalism as what we used to think of the traditional public service of journalism, which is, is to generally inform people, and, um, and more, more students are coming into journalism with the idea that they want to cover something in particular. You know, they want to be a music journalist, or they want to be a sports journalist, or they want to be a politics journalist. Um, and um, and I think that's because they don't actually, no one really sees this general interest news anymore. Um, and I think 
the disappearance of that is is unfortunate. That gives the you it sends the signal that it it, it kind of takes away this idea of, of of general curiosity. You know that that if you leaf through pages, you'll find something surprising. Now, have you know? Haven't we? Um, this is this is you know, my my opinion. Have have we not? made, first of all, we sort of blurred the term journalism, in my view, and then we've made journalists the stars. I mean, Walter Cronkite, I'm dating myself, but Walter Cronkite was never the star. The issue was the star. And haven't we blurred those two things? Yes, we absolutely have blurred those two things. Yes, yes. It's, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with the consolidation of the media and 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 the the, the need to, to drive profits off media. Um, you know, if you go back 50 years, 100 years, a lot of media was owned by, you know, crazy rich people who who just liked having news organizations. They they weren't really in it to make a lot of money necessarily. Some were, but um, but it was like, oh, let's make a profit and do this. And then, um, really, in the last 40 years, news became a product. You know, we we developed that term, news product, and your work product as a journalist. And then, and then um, it became more profitable if people recognized the person who's creating the news. So then we have the stars, the Wolf Blitzers, um, and then you know, and then so much focus became the reporter that they stopped pouring money into the gathering of the information because you can make just as much money with Wolf Blitzer just reading news that's already out there than than by gathering new news, which because new news, gathering new news is really costly. You know, I, uh, last year I had um, the CEO of NPR, Yao Mon, as a guest. And uh, one of the things we talked about was this investigative journalism piece, which I know is important um, to, your, to, to your work. And that has, I mean, so, sometimes investigative journalism, at the end of the day, doesn't even have a story. It, may take, it takes lots of time. It costs lots of money. It's critical to a democracy, but yet it's the first to go when you are when your when your um, journalism is corporatized. Yes, well, yes, sometimes depending on on where they see their money. But yes, definitely, and and um, well, what we've seen as a result of, of the of the, these corporations getting rid of. of of really good journalists by cutting out all that deep reporting is um, all these nonprofits springing up and um, and and organizations um, ponying up money to fund them, um, which I think is really heartening. I mean, there's just a slew of nonprofit organizations, and there's almost more opportunities now for my students who do want to go into investigative reporting than there would have been um, 20 years ago, because there weren't these nonprofit organizations that devote themselves to investigative reporting. Professor Marcy Burstener, thank you so much for joining me on The Public Morality. That was Professor Marcy Burstener. Stay tuned for my closing remarks.
And now for my closing remarks. I remember once my father told me I had to cut the grass in lieu of going to the movies with my friends. I countered by providing him with a list of things I had already accomplished that day, which included cleaning my room. My father said firmly, you don't get credit for doing what you should do. In that sense, he's right. But in our corrosive, uber-partisan political climate, I need to make an exception. I must acknowledge North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis for his willingness to do what should be done. In a recently penned op-ed, Tillis, a Republican, has made public his commitment to go forward with bipartisan legislation with fellow GOP Senator South Carolina's Lindsey Graham and Democratic Senators New Jersey's Cory Booker and Delaware's Christopher Coons. This legislation would prevent special counsel Robert Mueller from being fired without a judicial review and just cause. This is a bipartisan bill that would remove any hint of chicanery and ensure confidence in our public institutions. Regardless of one's political orthodoxy, nearly 70% of Americans, including 55% of Republicans, want Mueller to complete his investigation on Russian collusion in our elections, according to a recent Quinnipiac poll. As Tillis noted in his op-ed, quote, the president actually removes a special counsel without good cause. It would likely result in swift bipartisan backlash and shake the country's faith in the integrity of our legal system, unquote. Whether or not the president intends to fire Mueller, this legislation would take that option as well as the cacophony associated with its prospects off the table. The chattering class would have to find something else to occupy its time. It is sad but necessary that in our contemporary state, we must acknowledge that which should be commonplace. But here we are. Though my father was correct in that one should not get credit for doing what they should do, Tillis's intentions reflect the exception to our contemporary rule because it puts us back on the path toward that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. 